0: Psalms and the presence of God. Thinking about this, I thought about the fact that we live in a culture that values connection over presence. Everything in our, in our culture actually tries to connect people. If you just look at the tools that we have available, that there's a culture that says connection is very important, but we don't necessarily honor presence there's something in our culture that says, if I, if I get a few words on a line, of, or if I see a picture of what you've done, I feel connected. But in being more connected, we've lost the art of actually engaging in presence. There's some people that I look, um, and I'm not a great social media user, um, it's not important to me, so every once in a while I, I think about, I should, I should put something on, Jeez. Could reach people for God. And I look at some people's lives, what they're posting, and I think, Geez, I know the other side about you and what you're saying there and what is actually transpiring in your life just doesn't connect at all. Um, it's as if we've mastered the art of plastic connection, actually presenting something that we're not. And when we are in front of people, it's like, <laughs> not even sure how to engage you in presence anymore. When it comes to Christianity, I think that's, that's critical, that we don't fall into, into the pattern of this world. Where I think the pattern of this world is connection, 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 connection. But everything in Christianity is all about presence, about being present in the moment. Where if you look at all the other religions, it's about um, how a standard, how you need to achieve a certain standard... Uh, to get to a God, And only if you're perfect, this God would bless you or invite you. But, but our faith is all about the fact that God wanted to engage our presence so much that He sent His Son to leave heaven to come to us. The story of Christianity is the fact that Jesus became present on earth. He was in our midst. And even if you look at that, the fact that from the beginning, the journey of God with Israel, God used moment after moment after moment where he wanted to reveal his presence. One of the critical moments on the Mount of Sinai where God says to Moses, bring the nation of Israel to me. I want to reveal myself to them. I want to be their God. I want them to be my people. And at that pivotal moment, the Israelite says to God, Or says to Moses, not interested, you go alone. You go meet God and come and tell us what we should do. I think there's something for all of us to learn in that. That we can reduce our life of faith to a list of some things that we should do. Never actually experiencing and engaging the presence of a God that loves us. That in this journey of life, one of the biggest fears that I have is waking up in the morning thinking, realizing that I've reduced God to only this. The Bible reveals God, but He's bigger than this. It's not just words. It's not just stories. It's the actual experience of a living God in my life. And it's in, in that experience that, that, that we need to grapple with what presence actually means. What does it mean when we say God's presence is real in our life? And getting to that point, we've, we need to get away from the place where, where we define God's presence as just some force or some influence that creates good, good church services. It's not, it's not that. God's presence is that real, personal, life-changing presence that introduces us to a living and loving God who dwells and abides in us. He's here. That means that if we go outside of the church, guess where He is? He's there. He's not reduced to a building. I want to make a bold comment that the more we experience God's presence as people, the more we will become present in our community. The other side is also true. That's the story of Christianity. The more we reduce God's presence to a doctrine, the less present we'll become in our community. The more this is all about right doctrine and correct stuff that we need to believe, um, the more we reduce the God who is There's some interesting notes and quotes and stories. And we don't live the reality of His presence in the life that God has given us. Looking at the Psalms, it's it's amazing. And and I don't have time to go through all of them. I'm gonna try my best to go through some of them. But just thinking of uh, the Psalms, there's something that you see in terms of the reality of God's presence being something real in the midst of people. Just look at what Psalm 73 verse 28 says. Song of Korah, it says, I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made Lord God my home and I'm telling the world what you do. Look at that balance. I've made God my home. I'm in his presence. What's the, the most natural thing that happens after that? I'll tell the whole world about that. There's something of of, of the experience of God's presence that actually empowers us to become present and to share what and who God is. Psalm 84, I just want to read through it and just comment on some of them. um, The psalmist comes and he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints. Now, I mean, we've all heard this psalm, some of us. <laughs> Just think about the implication of what he's saying. It says, my soul yearns. It's a deep cry. I come to the point of even fainting for the courts of the Lord. That's not soft words saying, God, I love your presence. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's something that comes from the gut, that the psalmist says that, that I yearn for who you are from the depths of who I am. Psalm 42 says deep wants to call to deep. That I'm not satisfied with a connection and experience of God that just mere surface level intellectual thought processing. I want something of the experience of God that, act, that affects my innermost being. When Jesus says, the river will flow from your innermost being. is actually promising us the fact that we will have an actual experience of God's presence in our life. He continues. He says, my heart and my flesh. So it's soul, heart, flesh. It cries out for the living, living God. Speaks about the sparrows. And, and then in verse 4 he says, blessed are those who dwell, who abide, who find their home. In your house. Just think about John 15 when Jesus speaks about abiding in the vine and the results of abiding. It's more than just reading a few Bible verses, it's actually finding that place where your soul, your heart, your flesh, every crevice of your being engages God in a way that brings transformation. He says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. It says, they are ever praising you. Now, that word praise, interesting word. <clears throat> We've said it a couple of weeks ago. It's a public boasting and shouting that results in shining. <laughs> Can I just say that again? <laughs> it's a public boasting and shouting that results in Shining. Now, I've got the first two. I'm struggling with the second one. <laughs> but, but there's something about someone that actually comes to a place where they discover the power of, of praise. The next part is all thanks to AJ. When I mentioned this to AJ this morning, he said, "Yeah, there's something about praise that, that, that's actually designed into us. We were made to praise. The problem in our lives is we don't, we don't, we don't understand the principles of praise, but we actually live by them. But thinking about this um, while preparing, I realized that we praise what we enthrone. Just think about that for a moment. We praise what we enthrone. When it comes to God in our lives, we have lost the art of praising Actually bringing a sacrifice of praise, and I want to say, go and read the Bible, go and do the word study, seven different words of praise that's used um, over and over again. Everything about praise is bringing exaltation to who God is. There's nothing about the word praise that you sit in your corner doing it on your own. There's everything about praise is actually bringing a sacrifice. God, I'm not feeling about like this at the moment. I don't want to do this. Nothing in me wants to communicate, wants to praise, wants to bring something to you. But I'm going to choose to do it anyway. But when it comes to our problems, we praise them so easily. Have you heard that? Have you heard how easily people speak about their problems, their sickness, their pains, their their negative experiences? It's as if we've fallen into a culture where praising problems is the most natural thing to do. But when it comes to praising God, suddenly, I want to be all proper and private. You're willing to tell everyone about the problems you're experiencing. But when it comes to God, we reduce it to something that is merely private. Now, every one of us has the right to choose to worship and praise and do what they want. I'm not saying you have to. But what I am saying, is the more and more we praise our problems, the less and less we'll praise God. Where we fall into the trap of enthroning our problems, it becomes the most natural thing in our life to say, can I tell you about my struggle? And I want that. That's why we have groups. I want us to be able to speak into that. But something that's Interesting in the Psalms is how praise became a conduit that facilitated people into the experience of God's presence. Where suddenly problems and, and AJ spoke about it last time, last week, where they had the ability they 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 were oriented towards God, but suddenly fell into a disorientation where it's my enemies and it's darkness, and it feels like I'm I'm hunted, and it feels like things are, are so difficult. And then the principle of praise kicked in. But I choose to find my joy in the Lord. And how that just triggered a response of praise that resulted in an experience of God's presence in the midst. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Verse five. He says, "Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage." Now, this is important because the next word um, actually helps us um, see it. Oh wait, sorry. <clears throat> there we are. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. It's, it's the actual word highway. What do you do on a highway? Have you ever tried stopping on a highway? Can I just say, don't? <laughs> Um, not a good idea. Highways are something that you that you move on. Our hearts are set on pilgrimage, on movement. Even um, he says, my, "My soul, where am I?" There we go. As they pass, verse six, as they pass through the valley of Barka, it 's the valley of weeping, the valley of despair, the valley of anxiety. what do you do in the valley of Barka? You. Pass through. Look at that. It says, in our praise, our lives becomes a pilgrimage. Our lives becomes the highway. The, the message translation says it's a pathway that God trods on. Your life becomes the actual space that God walks in. And as you discover that, as you enter into the valley of Barker, the valley of despair, the valley of weeping, what do you do? You pass through. If you enthrone your problems, Barker becomes a destination. If we fall into the trap of enthroning our negative experiences, and if we fall into the trap of not understanding the power of praise, we are not on pilgrimage anymore. We have reached a destination. And it's a destination of weeping. Of despair, of being so desperate, and it lacks any sense of hope. Well, I wanna say, I don't think there's any one, two, three fixes for that experience. But one thing we see consistently in the Psalms, in the life of Jesus, and even in the life of Paul, stuck in a prison, what did they do when they entered into the valley of despair? Paul and Silas started praising. There's something about praise that it's mystical. I can't define it. But people that tap into the power of praise will always have the experience that in the moments of their deepest despair, they move through them. They don't fall stuck in them. They move to the valley of Barca. And they make it. A place of springs, where the autumn rains also cover it with pools. Can it be that the power of praise has such an ability that even your worst experience becomes a place where you would experience the saturation of God in the midst of it? That something of a desert, a dry place, a place of hopelessness Becomes the place of experience, the place where God is at. He continues, he says, In that they go from strength to strength, till each appears before who? Before God in Zion. And just continues, he says, Verse 8, Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Why? <clears throat> because better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. One day, in your ex- one day in your presence has the ability to bring more to my life than any experience that this world could bring. A thousand days put together. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is the sun's shield, bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Blessed be the Lord. There's something about that psalm that communicates the fact that the presence of God was something natural to the author. It's something that that the author experienced. It wasn't some distant, far-off thought. Willing to say that I'll compromise anything this world has to offer for a moment in your presence. David comes in Psalm uh, 16 verse 5 to to 11. He says, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. What I receive from you, I'm covered. And then what (coughs) what does he say? I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord, his presence, and who God is, where, always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And then, verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. Just, I, I want you to see how often the word praise, bless, and gladness contradicts the experiences of despair, hopelessness, and, and, and just uh, desolation. Barker. He says, therefore, why? Because I bless the Lord. Because at the night sessions, I choose to contemplate and to think about who God is. Because in every moment of my life, I put, the God, I put God constantly before me. I set my mind on God. Because of that. Guess what the result is? My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will rest in hope. I love that. It's not one day when I die, I will see hope. It's my flesh, this body. While I am in this experience, I will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, um, the place of dead. The place of hopelessness. You won't leave me there. He says, you will show me, or sorry, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That word corruption is actually the pit. So just think about what happens when we enthrone problems in our life. We've got this constant experience that I'm sliding into the pit. And that the pit is waiting for me. And I'm just one step away from, from the pit. Where David says, because I bless, because I am thinking about God at night, because I'm setting God before me, joy comes. I have the ability to bless. Um, Sheol, the place of death, isn't a, a destination for me. And there isn't a constant awareness of the pit because I've enthroned God in my praises. Verse 11, one of my favorite portions in Psalms, he says, You will show me. The path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's so much in this that I just read this and I say, God, help. (laughs) I want this. Help me not to stay in the trap where I've reduced my Christianity to some um, clean living, moral code, ethical living kind of design that just wants to be good for people. Help me to put as as the main aim of my experience, my enjoyment of you first, and then my service to people second. Because I'm convinced with everything that's inside of me, that if I place the enjoyment of God first, and and if I have these constant experiences of God's presence, that my service to people will be something that brings transformation to them. But if I engage my world from I better do good to people, Jesus would have done this. What would Jesus? You know what Jesus did? He enjoyed God first, and then he served people. There was something about the reality of his presence that Jesus enjoyed day after day after day. And out of that, he served people. Where we think our enjoyment of God will happen in heaven, and our only focus now needs to be the service of people. That's not what I see in the Bible. Even when it comes to the New Testament, not a psalm, but Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 23, Paul comes and he says, um, all this energy comes from Christ. God raised him from the death and set him uh, on a throne in heaven in charge of running the universe. At the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. There's something about the mandate of the church that has to express the um, the desire and the purpose of its head, and it's Christ. And then he comes with this definition. He says the church you see is not peripheral to the world; the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body, in which He speaks and acts, by which He fills everything with His presence. That's the desire. So in the next few minutes, I want to run through just a few thoughts. I just want to keep my eye on the time. God help me. A few notions that we need to understand. Firstly, when it comes to the presence of God, um, the Hebrew word for presence is the word paniyam. Love that. We're going to God's paniyam. Anyone want to go to paniyam? The great name for church. (laughs) Panayam church. The Hebrew word Paniyam is the word presence, translated 76 times as presence. And it actually refers to God turning his face to someone in, uh, in the spirit of acceptance and the spirit of favor. So when we speak of God's presence, it's, it's this notion that when we say there has to be an experience of God's presence, it actually says that it's the experience where you can see that God has turned himself towards you. He wants to see you, and he wants you to see him, and he wants you to see the look on his face, the experience, the expression of favor. That's why Jesus in Luke 4, when he took the scroll, stopped when he said, I'm proclaiming the acceptable year of God. If you look at the Isaiah, the reference in Isaiah, it actually promises destruction and gloom and judgment after that, but Jesus stops with favor. Why? Because Jesus is the face of God that communicates an inclusion, a welcome, an acceptance. The fact that there's favor. So when we see God, or well, when we see Christ, we see the face of God in Christ. We see His favor. So there's three experiences of fra- favor, and I'm just going to run through them. The first one is what we call omnipresence. We've all used this word. It's the fact that God is Everywhere. I'm just going to run through this. Psalm 139, verse 6 to 8. Uh, the, the psalmist comes and he says, Such wonderful, uh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I'm in heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. God is everywhere. This is so different to my mom telling me when I was growing up. If you go to those places, remember God's not there. And then when I got saved, everyone was telling me I should go there to bring God there. And I had this distance. <laughs> um, where can I go from your presence? Uh, Jeremiah 23 verse 24. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so, not, that, so that I won't see them, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and the earth? <laughs> I love it. God is everywhere. Isaiah 61, 66 verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my Footstool, where is the house that you will build for me? (laughs) I'm everywhere. So don't think that you can build something where I'm not. So there's something about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere. But then there's a manifested presence where in history there's been moments where God revealed himself in certain spaces and places. Incredible. Genesis 3, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. In um, Chronicles, Second Chronicles 5, verse 11 to 14. I don't have time to read through all of that. But it's interesting, the dedication of the temple. So Solomon built this majestic temple. In um, comes the moment where they want to dedicate it. And guess what they do? They trigger praise as the moment where they want to welcome God into the temple. And how did they praise? Symbols, harps, drums. It was loud. Everyone shouting together in one voice. And when the trumpets blew, guess what happened? There was a manifestation of God's presence that no one could stand. There was an awareness of God's presence that it said that the building, the temple, the cloud was so thick that people experienced God's presence in such a way that they couldn't stand. Jonathan Edwards in 1735 during the Welsh Revival said um, that uh, (coughs) when interviewing people, they were saying this town seemed to be full of the presence of God. That's that's what people were saying. In the American Revival, um, close to Azusa, some of the ports, when, when boats were coming in, some of the sailors got saved on the boats before they actually reached the shoreline. There was no one preaching on the boats. No one was saying anything. There was just... A revelation of God's presence that as people were coming close, they just felt, hey, what am I doing with my life? They started repenting and they committed their lives to Christ before anyone ever said something to them. And while thinking about this, I thought, God, what would it look like for us to see an experience of your presence in this geographical space? What would it look like for us to not reduce you to a few good ideas about you? A few nice songs, but to actually live with a conviction of your presence in us, everywhere we go, to actually walk in the power of praise to such a point where our sacrifice of praise shows the glory of God to people all around. The last one is a felt realized personal presence, where David comes in Psalm 51 and he says, God, don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 1611 just read that. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. David is speaking about his personal experience of God's presence. Don't have time to go into this. But we, um, we take uh, two words that the New Testament speaks of. Logos, rhema. Logos, what is universally true about God. Rhema, what is personally true about God. And we are so afraid of what happens when people make mistakes on the rhema side, that we cut that out and we focus only on what is universally true about God, not realizing that in that moment we take people away from the ability of experiencing God personally. That is God. Is what is true about God? Is it universally true? Yes. Go and read the Psalms. Your loving kindness and your goodness is from generation to it just. Constantly states what is universally true about God. But one thing that blesses me about the Psalms is how what is universally true becomes personally true. How the fact that God is everywhere suddenly becomes a reality that God is in my life at this moment. Acts 3 verse 19. Peter comes and he says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted. Why? So that times of refreshing may come. From the presence of the Lord. Why do we repent? Jesus, when Jesus spoke on repentance, he says, repent for the kingdom. It's not just repenting to get rid of sins, it's repent until you see the kingdom coming. When Peter speaks about repentance, he says, repent to get rid of sins, to to embrace what Christ did for you. Why? So that the presence of God could become a reality in your life. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That this body becomes the meeting place between God and man. God and humans. That's the promise. A.W. Tozer made this comment in his um, book, The pursuit of God, he said, it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. (laughs) It's one of those little quotes um, that you can leave on there for a while. Unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. There's a few more that I put on there. In the New Testament, the presence becomes a reality because of God's Spirit. Can I just say, any notion that God's Spirit and the work of God's Spirit stopped at the time of the Apostles, biggest lie. It's just not true. Just not true. God is working in His church and He's working in our lives. And He wants to transform us because He wants to see His kingdom come on this planet. That's why when Jesus spoke in John 14 to 16, just going to read how Jesus constantly promises the reality of His Spirit. And in John 14, 27, He says, the Spirit will abide the Spirit will abide with you and He will be in you. Just go and look at the effect of what happened in Jesus just after uh, the um, Spirit was released over His life. In John, or in, in, in John chapter 4. I had it somewhere. But just after Jesus came out of the, um, out of the wilderness. It says He went in with the Spirit of God but came out in the power of the Spirit. Just think about what happened in the church when the Spirit was released over the church. I love the song that we just saw. That the Spirit lit the flame, and it's an eternal flame. It's a flame that brings life. And it's not to help us do stupid things in church buildings. It's to give us the actual experience of God's presence so that we can become present in our communities. So I want to end. Psalm 100. Listen to what he says. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, and look to the way that it starts. It starts by saying, "Shout with joy to the Lord, who everyone worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with singing and." Joy. Can I say that someone who is constantly aware, not just of God's omnipresence, but that, not just about the manifest presence of God that you had experiences, but someone that is aware of God's felt, realized presence in your life, this would be the most natural thing to do. But if we enthrone our problems... If we've fallen into the trap of a culture of complaints, this would be the most unnatural thing to do. That it's not personality type. This is about a God who is, and I can promise you, just read your Bible. The first thing that we'll do when we see God in eternity is praise. We'll glorify. There's something about praise that releases exaltation. And we struggle with that because we've fallen into traps thinking that our problems are bigger than our God. And I want to say praise is the doorway to displace problems at the center of your being. When the psalmist comes, he says, shout. It helps us to understand the power of praise. Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with singing. Uh, come before Him singing with joy. Why? because it's going to trigger a next experience what you'll know so what you praise and what you know is what Psalm 100 does acknowledge that the Lord is God He made us we are His and we are the sheep we are His people the sheep of His pasture then He goes back to praising He says enter His gates with what? enter His gates with thanksgiving Even if you feel there's nothing to be thankful for, the way you enter is through finding the one thing. Finding the one thing that God has given you. I enter His gates with thanksgiving. I go into His courts with praise. Giving thanks to Him and praising His name. Why? Because this is the knowing that comes again. Because the Lord is good. Even in the midst of your experience, the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. There's moments in life, and and, and I want to say, I hate uh, manipulation. so I'll never do that. But I want to say there's times in your life where you will have to make a choice to say, I choose praise. I choose to enthrone God in my life rather than enthroning the problems in my life. And it's (laughs) tension-filled. This morning at four when I sat with this, I was feeling sick. thought, Clinton, why didn't you ask someone else to preach? (laughs) And I got stuck in this. And it was 10 minutes later that I thought I would never surrender this moment for anything else. Because the power of praise releases an experience of God's presence. Where it's in that moment that God becomes real. We love that song. The things of this world grow strangely dim. Why? Because we've turned our eyes upon Jesus. It's a God that has to be praised, almost assumes praise, but He won't force you. And in this moment, I'm going to ask you to, to take some time, whatever it looks like for you, to think about what God did for you on the cross. The fact that He sent His Son to die for you so that any experience of barker, of weeping, of of, of de- depression, of desolation, of, of just discouragement would never have to be a final destination. But that the discovery of what Christ did for us will bring us on this pilgrimage. When the ways that we put it, in the discovery of what Jesus did for us, brings us to a place of knowing God. I want to say, knowing God releases praise. It brings us to a place of finding Freedom. You know what a, f- a free person does? They praise. It leads, leads us to a discovery of purpose. where suddenly we've, we discover the significance of what God has called us to. We're not stuck in the meaningless uh, uh, momentum of, of nothingness. We discover that this life means something, and we praise <laughs> and we make a difference. And in seeing the effect of what God does in us and through us, the natural result is we praise. So I don't know where you are. Maybe you need to know God this morning. Maybe you've gone through life and and you've never had that experience of just saying, God, I wanna know you. This could be a great opportunity for you. Or you're in a place this morning saying that, that I am stuck in a jail, I'm in a prison, I've lost my freedom. Part of this morning is saying, God, I'm gonna praise you in the midst of my prison sentence, and I'm gonna trust you for the release. Can't do anything about this myself. Some of you can praise him because of a discovery of purpose where where you have lived life, it's the hamster wheel, it's the going through the motions, it's the fact that it's from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. There's nothing significant about what you the sense of, of what you're doing. But I'm trusting that in our time of communion and in our time of prayer and praise this morning that something would become real in terms of significance so that we could make a difference for a God that deserves it in our life. Let's stand together as we pray.